0: we turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we return to our study of 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Again, this is the word of the Lord as... The Holy Spirit inspired Paul, the Apostle, to write to the church at Corinth, and so I call your attention to the very word of the living God. As we read now again, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples of, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents." nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray as we consider God's word. Lord our God, we thank you that you have given your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that you have promised that your word will not return to you empty. So we pray that as we have just read it, and as it will now be exposited, that your word would take effect, that that which is living and powerful would be powerful in us, and powerfully change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well for the last couple of chapters as we've been reading or as we return now to First Corinthians Paul has been in the recent chapters here addressing the matter of liberty of conscience and of how those who are more knowledgeable should deal lovingly with their weaker brothers and sisters. And remember we learned in the early chapters of the epistle that a major problem in the Corinthian church uh, of, or at that time anyway, was uh, factionalization. Uh, They were divided into cliques, if you will. They were factionalizing over unnecessary things. In fact, it was basically over who they thought their favorite preacher was. We'll combine those facts and we see that there was a prevalent tendency In the congregation, for some to look down their noses at others. And in today's passage, Paul warns against attitudes like that, saying, take heed, lest thinking you stand, you fall. He warns against arrogance and overconfidence. Verse 12 is really the conclusion of the argument of the passage. Paul writes, therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. From this we get our main point for today's sermon, our main exhortation. Take heed, lest you fall. We'll get into what that means and what it does not mean shortly, but just for now let me be clear that when Paul tells a believer, take heed, lest you fall, or when he speaks to a congregation here, take heed, lest you, thinking you stand, you actually fall. He's not saying that an actual believer who has been changed in heart by the Holy Spirit can lose their salvation. What he is saying is, take heed, as we will see, to make sure that if you think you're saved, you really are. Along the way, we'll learn several lessons. With God's help, number one, with God's help, any temptation can be overcome. The second thing we'll learn is that being in the visible church does not guarantee your salvation. The third thing we'll see is that Christ was actually in the wilderness with Israel. And Of course, as a side note with that, we can note that if Christ was in the wilderness with Israel, of course he is with us now. Fourth, the Old Testament scriptures were written for the benefit of new covenant believers. That's not the only reason they were written, but Paul tells us they were written for that reason. And five, we have the exhortation, do not lust for evil things. And we'll see some of the examples Paul gives of evil things that we should not lust for. So let's start with our main point, our exhortation here. Take heed, lest you fall. Again, verse 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Those Paul speaks here first about someone who thinks he stands. He's not saying, take heed for those of you who actually stand, that you don't fall. He's not teaching that one who is truly in Christ can truly and permanently fall away from Christ. (coughs) One of the complicated things that we see about salvation is that uh, you and I can't know what's in someone's heart we can only see the fruits they bear sometimes people seem to bear fruit for a time and then they fall away and in some cases they return and so they never truly fell completely away from Christ and in other cases they're like those people that John speaks of who says they went out from us because they were not actually of us Assurance of salvation is possible for the believer. Every true believer can possess such assurance, but not every believer actually does possess that assurance. Lacking assurance does not mean that you lack salvation. But it's also possible, this is what makes it complicated from our point of view, when we can't look on the heart, only the Lord can look on the heart. It's possible to have true assurance of salvation but it's also possible to have false assurance of salvation. The need for a true believer to be lacking assurance, as the Westminster Confession rightly points out, means either that person is relatively new to the faith, they just haven't come to the point of attaining assurance of salvation yet, or it means that by some sin he has lost his sense of assurance, whether through neglect of spiritual things or falling into some specific sin that he's prone to, or Uh, by struggling with an especially strong temptation, sometimes just by God, for His own good purposes, withdrawing His blessings, usually because of sin, uh, we can begin to doubt, was I ever even saved? But of course, the one who is truly saved will always return and eventually have that assurance. But normally then, as you see yourself dying more and more into sin, living to righteousness... You know that you can't do that of your own strength. So it must be the Holy Spirit at work within you. And only God's redeemed people have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Therefore, if you see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you must be saved. In Romans 8, Paul writes in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. but those who live according to the Spirit... The things of the spirit. Do you find yourself more and more. Leaving behind the thoughts. The concentration on the things of the flesh. Then in verse 9 he says. But you are not in the flesh. Speaking to believers. You are not in the flesh. But in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. He is not his. So in other words. If you are actually in Christ. You have the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of Christ is going to make a difference. In your life. And also verse 11 of Romans 8. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So not only in that passage is that an assurance of future resurrection, that's also an assurance of the ability to walk now in newness of life. As your faith endures trials, as you find that you can overcome sin more and more, well, then you know that your sin is genuine. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, in this, he's speaking about your salvation, in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when your faith endures through trials, it shows its genuineness. But it is, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, also possible for someone to have false assurance. The kind of people who will come to Christ at the last day, calling Him Lord, And speaking of all the great things that they have done in His name, and He speaks of them in Matthew 7, He says that He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or you you workers of iniquity. These are people who are convinced they're Christ's faithful servants. So that begs the question, well then how do I know that I'm not one of those people? How do you know that your faith is genuine? In James 2, verses 17-18, through 18, James says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Yes, those people claimed to do works in Christ's name, but I would make an educated guess. That if you compared those works to what God calls good works in Scripture you'll find they actually aren't what God calls good works. And of course nothing done apart from faith is good. So they have to have faith and they have to have faith that produces works. In Philippians 2.12 Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying earn your salvation by your works, but he's saying outwardly work the salvation you have with fear and trembling. So a couple of elements of that is, first of all, it's outwardly demonstrate the fact that you are saved. And then, secondly, it's do it not with arrogance or with overconfidence, but with fear and trembling. Saying, but for the grace of God, I would not have this salvation. And I can't presume upon that grace. I need to see it working in my life to know it's there. Yes, be confident in the Lord. Be confident in the merits of Christ, but do not think that those merits apply to you unless you're actually clearly bearing the fruits, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. Galatians 5, through 23 gives some evidence, the kinds of things that evidence the presence of the Spirit in you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law do you find yourself growing in love for god and his people especially in joy even in the midst of trials one of the great joys that god's people can have is that we know that even through the worst things that happen to us in this life that we still have eternal life to come do you have peace do you have patience Are you growing in those things? We don't all have these to the same degree. But are you growing in them? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Take heed, lest you think you stand, but will actually fall. Make sure that you're self-examining. Make sure that you're examining yourself and seeing if you're growing in these things. Literally, Paul says, let him watch lest he fall. You're watching out for yourself. Take heed lest you fall. In this passage, Paul also offers several lessons related to and leading to that conclusion that we should take heed lest we fall. The first related idea actually follows on the heels of that conclusion. So that's number one here. With God's help, any temptation you face can be overcome. So this is a great evidence that the Holy Spirit, by the way, is at work with you. If you find that when you resist temptation, you can resist temptation. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The phrase there, expression, common to man... Uh, is actually one Greek word. And it literally means that which is human. Or pertaining to being human. So no temptation has overtaken you except that which is human. Except that which is pertaining to human nature. No temptation you or I ever face is greater than what other men and women have faced in the past. Indeed, Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus faced them he faced every kind of temptation, not necessarily every specific temptation, with all of the same details, but every category of temptation. Hebrews four fifteen tells us Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He overcame temptation in your place if your trust is in Him, but not so that you might give into temptation with impunity. Paul says in Romans, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? God forbid. Rather, we are called to follow Christ in righteousness. Romans six eleven and 12. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. God is faithful to keep us from temptations beyond our ability to overcome. Certainly beyond His ability to overcome them in us. Indeed, Paul says here, He will always give you a way out. Sometimes the way out is difficult. And we avoid it because we don't like how hard it's going to be. It might bring consequences of disdain from neighbors, persecution from a government, who knows? There is no sin that is truly irresistible. I remember not long ago hearing a a joke about uh, reformed pickup lines. And one of them was, Is your name Grace? Because you're irresistible. (laughs) Well, if that's talking about a, a, a lust for sin... Or something uh, there's nothing that is truly irresistible except God's grace. Only God is irresistible. No sin is actually irresistible. Many people uh, often will excuse their sins by saying it was just too much to resist. But that's not true of a Christian. There really is no sin that is truly irresistible for you. God will always give you a way out. Now that's a both great. That's both a great comfort. And a great warning for us. It lays a great responsibility on us. You know, What a comfort to know that God will so preserve His people that in His providence there is always a way to escape sinning. Yet that warns us. Not one of us can blame the temptation for our choice to give in to it. Yes, there's a responsibility upon the one that consciously tempts God's people. Jesus says it would be better for someone to have a great millstone. When he talks about that, he's talking about a millstone that's like the the size of of a living room. (laughs) Have that that millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. It's better for such a person to have that done to them than to tempt one of God's little ones, one of Christ's little ones, to sin. God doesn't take it lightly. But we have to recognize there is no temptation which is really too great for Christ to overcome it in us. He will always give us the way out. There is no sin that is really irresistible. With God's help, any temptation can be overcome. Take heed lest you think you stand but actually fall. Secondly, the second lesson we see here. Being in the visible church does not guarantee salvation. That's really verses 1 through 5 that we see in our passage here. I'll read them again. Moreover brethren I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The ancient Israelites were rescued by God from Egypt. And by the way, notice that uh, Paul considers them our fathers, even as he writes to a predominantly Gentile congregation. The fathers of all believers are the visible church of the past. Whether you have Jewish ancestry or not, ancient Israel was led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. These experiences identified them with Moses, who is the mediator of the Old Covenant in much the same way, though the Christ in a greater way is the mediator of the New Covenant. And so, this is a way, so they were identified with Moses in a similar way to how baptism identifies professing believers and their children with Christ. God fed them manna in the wilderness and gave them water from a rock. All of them partook of those things, what the Psalms call angels' food. They partook of the water. They all partook of those same experiences that built up the faith of the true believers in their midst. But for those who had no faith, it didn't do a thing. A large number of them did not believe. The only thing it did was bring more condemnation on them for not believing in the face of what God was doing. They did not trust the Lord. And their lack of faith brought about their destruction. They were in the visible church. They were in God's visible covenant people. And yet it didn't save them. Simply being visibly there didn't save. They did not take of what was right in front of them and they fell. They were part of the visible covenant people but were not truly saved. They were not of the invisible covenant people if you will. Likewise growing up with Christian parents... Having your name on a church roll, those are great blessings. Being in the visible church, while important, while wonderful, those are not what guarantee that you are saved. Jesus saves. Many a professing Christian actually has lacked true saving faith. So take heed lest you think you stand, but actually will fall. Being in the visible church does not guarantee your salvation. So many people have made that error, thinking, well, I go to church, isn't that good enough? Not if you don't have the faith that is bearing fruit. Three, Christ was in the wilderness with Israel. It's a wonderful lesson we read, and Paul just uh, mentions it almost in passing. Verse 4, and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. In Exodus 17, 6, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb. So Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses struck the rock, water gushed forth, enough water to to supply the millions of Israelites who had come out into the wilderness. Now by Paul's day, there was a well-known Jewish legend that claimed that uh, people would ask the question, well, where did they get water as they wandered around in these wilderness areas? And and someone said, well, the, the rock that Moses struck at Horeb followed them and continued giving them water. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. In fact, that would beg the question why there was another rock then later on in their journeys that the Lord told Moses to speak to and Moses struck it and the Lord actually condemned Moses for not following his instructions correctly. There, speak to it, not strike it. <clears throat> he thought, well, the same way it worked before should be the way it works now, apparently. But in any case, at Paul's day, there was this legend that had developed that said, well, that rock had actually followed them In the wilderness wherever they went. And provided them with water. So the scriptures say no such thing. Here Paul says well there was a rock that actually followed them in the wilderness. It wasn't that physical rock. It was a spiritual rock. And it was a person. It was Christ himself. In Exodus 23.20 the Lord says. Behold I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. And to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So there's an angel who goes before Israel in the wilderness. But in Exodus 13, 21, Moses tells us, And the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. So the angel who went before Israel was the Lord himself. This is not an unusual thing in the Old Testament. This is uh, something that we see in many places. This, this is the angel of Yahweh. A person who is both sent by God and is God at the same time. The same person who spoke with Abraham. Who shared a meal with Abraham. He sent two angels on to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them and spoke with Abraham. The one who wrestled with Jacob. The one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. In Isaiah 63, 9... We're told the prophet calls him the angel of his presence. When this angel is present, the very presence of Yahweh is there. As John tells us in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God in his divine essence. He's an invisible God, right? But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. So we learn from that that when Yahweh appeared on earth in visible form, it was God the Son. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. And Paul tells us here, that same person, Christ, was in the wilderness with Israel. That's a wonderful comfort. We know that Christ is in the church now. though we can't see Him. Bodily, His human nature is in heaven. But as God, He is everywhere. And He promises to dwell in His church. He told his disciples, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Christ was in the wilderness with Israel, and yet many did not believe. So, be aware that Christ is in our midst. But that doesn't mean that each one of us here is necessarily saved. Take heed, lest you think you stand, but you may fall. For, the Holy Spirit tells us in the Old Testament Scriptures, or rather, the Paul tells us here, by the Holy Spirit, that the Old Testament scriptures were written for the benefit of new covenant believers. Now that's not the only reason they were written. They were helpful to the Old Covenant believers too, for example. God used them to teach them what to expect of Christ, for example. God inspired the Old Testament also, for the benefit of new covenant believers, as well as inspiring them for the old covenant believers' use. As Paul says in verse 6, now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. So, the things he's talking about there are the testimony of Scripture about how Israel behaved after being rescued from Egypt. And in verse 11, he writes, Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So a major purpose of the Old Testament Scriptures is that they would be of use to new covenant believers. We live in the last age of the world as Paul says here. The end of the ages has come upon us. Since Christ has come and until His return we are in the last days. I've mentioned before how As a pastor, every once in a while I get somebody asking me, they find out I'm a minister or the gospel and they'll ask, well, do you think we're living in the last days? And my answer to that is, sure. Of course, so has every Christian since Christ's first coming. We've been in the last days, according to the Bible, since the first century AD. About 2,000 years. We don't know how much longer it's going to go. We certainly lived in the last age of the world. The Lord gave the Old Testament scriptures for our use in this last age. For the use of those upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So there is no unhitching the Old Testament from the New as some would have us do today. These scriptures were written for our admonition, Paul says. So use them. And take heed, lest you think you stand, but actually fall. Look at the examples of the Old Testament people and notice that many of them believed and many did not. Though they were of Israel, though they were in Israel, perhaps we should say they were not of Israel. And five, do not lust after evil things. You want to have evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you? Well, see if you can leave behind the, the evil things that your flesh lusts after. Again, verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul offers several examples of how ancient Israel lusted or desired after evil things, teaching these sub-lessons: A. Reject idolatry. See that in verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That last part is actually a quote from Exodus thirty-two six, which describes what Israel did when they worshipped the golden calf. So it's a direct uh, relation to idolatry, to the crassest form of idolatry. They just built a golden calf and said, There's the Lord God. That's the God who delivered you out of Egypt. Later on, Jeroboam the son of Nebat did the same thing when Israel separated the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom of Judah and he didn't want people going to the temple in Jerusalem lest that would make them loyal to the house of David and so he set up golden calves and said there's the God that delivered you out of Egypt. Do not become idolatrous. Reject sexual immorality. That's in verse 8 nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Exodus 32 tells us the Levites actually killed 3,000 who refused to repent of such immorality and idolatry. And an unspecified number of people also died in a plague. If Paul's talking about that, he would be indicating here about 20,000. In Numbers 25, we read 24,000 die in a plague directly because of this kind of sin connected to the worship of Baal Peor. Reject sexual immorality. See? Do not put Christ to the test. We see that in verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by spirits or by serpents, excuse me. In Numbers 21 we read of the The Lord sending fiery flying serpents, as they're called, to chastise Israel when they were grumbling against Moses. That put the Lord to the test. Saying, well, who do you think you are, God, to choose Moses to rule over us and not somebody else? Deuteronomy 6.16, he commands, you shall not tempt or put to the test the Lord your God. Do not put Christ the test by presuming upon His grace and thinking that I can be in Christ and not make any change. D. Do not complain against the Lord. This is a related principle. Verse 10. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. There are numerous incidents that could be describing when the people grumbled against the Lord and or His servant Moses, God sent various plagues against them. Don't be like that. Grumbling against the Lord, but rather trust that he knows what is best for you. All these things are written for our benefit, Paul says. God is sovereign, but he's not morally responsible for your choice to sin. So pay attention to these lessons. Take heed lest you think you stand, but actually you may fall. But again, do not think that that means that if you truly are in Christ that you could possibly lose your salvation. Rather, just be self-examining. Be looking to yourself. See, am I actually growing in righteousness? Am I finding it uh, that I'm leaving sin behind more and more? Am I struggling against it? Sometimes it's a hard struggle. But am I struggling against it? Am I looking to put sin to death in myself? And am I succeeding? And if you are, that means the Holy Spirit is at work within you. Do not be overconfident or arrogant about your salvation, but be trusting in Christ Jesus. And know that He has accomplished all things. And that you're saved by God's grace alone, working through faith alone in Christ alone. But that faith is never by itself. It will always produce good works. So if you see those works being produced in you, then you can have assurance of salvation. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us to be mindful of these things. Let us not be arrogant, but with fear and trembling work out our own salvation that our confidence may be in Jesus Christ alone, that we might see the fruits of true saving faith, of true repentance born in our lives, that we might have every assurance that indeed we are in Christ and therefore we know that we stand because we do not stand in our own strength but on the strength of Christ and upon that solid rock, that spiritual rock, who follows your people in the wilderness of this life and who provides all good things for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.